Well, good evening, Evie Knight. How you doing? That's good. Glad to hear everyone. Very vocal. Um, hey, we're going to get into that part of the Bible in Genesis that Ben just read for us, uh, but I'm going to pray first. So let's do that. Now, Father God, what a thing it is to come to you, the God of the universe, uh, with confidence. Thank you so much for the Lord Jesus, the confidence that we have to approach you, to know our forgiveness is secured, uh, to know that you are for us, that you love us, and to sit under your word. And so, Father, I pray that you would bless us tonight through your word. And Father, I'm conscious that many of us come carrying all sorts of things in our hearts tonight. Father, some of us are full of uh, joy as we enjoy the good gifts that you do give us and we thank you for that and we pray that tonight would cause us all the more to praise you for your good gifts. And But Lord, I'm conscious some of us come carrying all sorts of burdens and hurts and pain and I pray, Lord, that tonight your word might uh, bind up our hearts, offer healing and encouragement and Father, I pray as well, Lord, that you would be at work to stir our hearts toward a single devotion toward you and you alone. And so, Father, please do a mighty work in us tonight by your Holy Spirit, through your Word. Amen. What would you do for love? There's a saying, love makes fools of us all. Love and, and sex as well are two forces which massively drive the whole world, really. Now, I can speak pretty confidently about all of this because I, too, am a victim of love. The year is 2001. Punk music is at an all, it's in full swing. The internet was a fun new fad that was going to peter out any day now, and I was in year 11 high school, and I had hair. And, <laughs> and most wonderfully of all, I was in love. Now, one time I was at a mate's house and that girl was there. It was a day of hanging out around the pool, mucking around and a whole bunch of careful, skillful flirting. We had a good time. But at the end of the day, we had to go home. Now, there was another guy who lived at this house. Uh, He lived with my mate and this guy was also interested in that girl. And frankly, this other guy, he was a bit of a jerk. He, he, was, he was a real piece of work. But apart from that guy, really good day. Now, as I was leaving, I noticed that the girl in question had accidentally left her rashie behind, like the, you know, the sun protection shirt things. And I was like, she'd already gone. And I was like, idea, I've got a good idea here. If I grab that rashie for her and kindly return it to her at church on Sunday, well, it's going to be a good opportunity to chat and keep up the conversation and all that. So, took it, headed home. Problem was, though, 20 minutes down the road, I'm almost home, and I found out that the rashi didn't belong to her. (laughs) It actually belonged to angry jerk guy, the other guy who lived in the house. And he'd lent it to her for the day, and so I'd stolen his rashi. And so, what did I do? What any sane person would do, I did a U-turn, drove back to the house, and did this amazing stealth mission up the driveway, like, legit, on my belly, crawling up the driveway over his side fence, into his yard, past his like barking dog that was trying to murder me and put the stupid rashie back on the pool fence where she'd left it and I legged it out of there. No one ever found out what I'd done or more importantly, why I'd done it. So mission success. Love makes fools of us all. And that's just 
one of my stories. I could tell you about the time I used a thing called Nair, which is like a hair product, hair thing where you remove body hair, got rid of all my back hair before a pool party to impress some girl. Instead, I ended up smelling like strawberry Nair and burnt hair all night. I could even tell you about the time a friend of mine had a video of me on his phone saying something about the girl I liked and I didn't want that video to see the light of day, so I wrestled him for it and I dislocated his hip. Um, There's all sorts of stories, and I'm sure you've got your own stories as well. Um, That that last one was my wife, actually, so all good, right? (laughs) And she saw the video, it was all fun. All right, love and sex makes people do crazy stuff. Now, why? Why does it make us climb up driveways in the middle of the night and do all sorts of crazy things? Because for most of us, it really, really, really matters. Now, some of that intensity, that willingness to do anything for the sake of love, it's kind of nice, it's kind of romantic, right? But sometimes the, the craziness of love and, and sex exposes actually a deeper problem going on in our hearts. What it may actually expose is a, a misshaped love in our hearts, a misshaped love of love, a misshaped love of sex or, and for some of us, you might even call it an idolatry, something that we grab and we say, you, you make a good God, I'm going to make this thing, this person, this whatever, this romantic interest, God, and we live our lives as though that is ultimate. We put it up on a pedestal and we worship it or them or whatever, instead of the God who should be worshipped. Now, a misplaced love for God's good gifts, it's all over tonight's passage and we're actually going to journey a bit further into Genesis 30 as well tonight. Now, in the broad, broad scheme of things, Genesis 29, Genesis 30, it's all about how God's people Israel came to be, how this nation came about. It's the story of God keeping His promises to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation, I'm going to bless the world for you. But it is also the story of a messy love triangle between Jacob and these two sisters, Leah and Rachel. Now, as we look closer, what we're going to see is three people who are gripped by misshaped loves. And the first one is this, Jacob, the misshaped love of sex. So, you have a look there, what happens to Jacob? He meets Rachel, he's on this journey, he's running away from his brother Esau, who he's just ripped off, we saw that last week, and he meets this woman, Rachel, and he goes home to her father's house and he starts to work for him, a guy called Laban, it's his uncle, and Laban says to him, verse 15, we read it, you know, what can I pay you to work for me? You're obviously really good at managing all this stuff, what can I pay you? And for Jacob, there's one word, Rachel. Have a look at verse 16. Now, Laban had two daughters, the name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Now, the Hebrew, literally, the words this was written in literally is saying, Rachel, she had a great body. That's literally what it's describing, a lovely figure. And in contrast, it says that Leah had weak eyes, which either meant she, in some sense, wasn't easy on the eyes, it wasn't good to look at her, or because of some sort of a defect with her eyes, she she wasn't beautiful in contrast to Rachel, that's what's been talked about here, and Jacob, he's completely taken by Rachel, and so, verse 18, have a look there, Jacob was in love with Rachel, and he said to Laban, I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Seven years of work, that's like $600,000 in today's terms. And this, their custom was that they would pay a, a dowry and 
to get married back then, but this was a crazy rip-off, like half a million dollars, seven years, is, is not a normal thing. And so I reckon at this point, Laban works out, I've got a sucker on my hands, this Jacob guy, he, he'll do anything to be with Rachel. Which is actually, if you've been following along with us in Genesis, is actually beautifully ironic because Jacob is the sneaky jerk who ripped off his brother just a few chapters earlier and now Jacob is going to be the victim of a sneaky, sneaky jerk. Now, Jacob works seven years but verse 20 it says, it felt like only a few days because of his love for Rachel. Now, in a second, we're actually going to see that what's really going on here is Jacob actually has a misshaped love of sex, I think. Uh, But for him, it is tied up with being in love. He's in love with this woman, he's infatuated. And for most people, that's how it goes, isn't it? Love and sex is this powerful drug when you put them together. Now, verse 21, some of you groaned as this was read out, and it's worth groaning about, I reckon, but you get an insight into what is going on for Jacob. Have a look at verse 21, after he's worked all these years. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, my time is completed and I want to make love to her. Future dad, future father-in-law, give me your daughter, I want to have sex, I'm done waiting. Now the NIV actually translates that kind of politely for us, it says I want to make love to her, Uh, but if you read the ESV, it translates it a little bit more literally and you'll see what I mean, it's it's really crass, I'm not trying to be rude, I just want you to catch what's going on here, he says I want to go into her is what the ESV says, which is quite shocking. I'm not trying to be rude, but we need to see how he's thinking here. Imagine talking like that to your future father-in-law about a woman. (laughs) I can't wait to have sex with your daughter, give it to me now. Now, my mate Hazy, you need to listen to the end of this story before you (laughs) try and land it, but my mate Hazy, when he went to ask his father-in-law for his daughter's hand in marriage, he went to see Dave, and when he went to see Dave, Dave was sitting on his front deck in like a chair holding a spear gun and Dave loved to tell Hazy how much he liked to shoot things and if if Hazy had tried this, which he didn't, let's be clear, he'd probably be dead by now. (laughs) Do you see what's driving Jacob? He's in love, yes, but the passage is very clear, coincidentally she's also the hottie, it's everything to him. Jacob is in the grip of a misplaced love of sex, he's obsessed He's completely vulnerable because of that to Laban's schemes. Now, next comes the twist. Have a look at verse 22. This is the wedding now. So, Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. And then when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and Jacob made love to her. And Jacob gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. So, Laban does a sneaky thing here, instead of sending Rachel, he sends uh, Leah. Now, I don't know how that works exactly, it was dark and all that, I imagine, but verse 25, here's the twist. When morning came, there was Leah. And so, Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Now, Laban feeds him a lie. Around here, we always... send the oldest daughter first and so on, and then Laban asks for another seven years if he wants Rachel's hand in marriage. Now, any normal person would be done with this at this point, but not, not Jacob, he's completely and utterly lovesick and so he agrees to it and then finally, verse 30, he gets what he wants. Jacob made love to Rachel also and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah and he worked for Laban another seven years. 
So this guy would have done anything for love. He would have done anything for sex with the girl of his dreams. This is a man who's emotionally, and he's overwhelmed emotionally, uh, the desire for this woman. Now, it's not wrong for Jacob to be in love with Rachel. It's not wrong to want sex with her in the context of marriage. But it is worth noting, just as we're moving along here, polygamy is wrong. Marrying multiple people, one person. The New Testament makes that very clear. It's wrong. It's a clear thing that's made clear in the New Testament. And the trading of daughters, like their cattle in some sense, is also wrong. So that's pretty clear from the New Testament as well. So there's some cultural things going on here, which God is not saying this is how it should be. Rather, it's a description of how things were. And that's actually the case all the way through Genesis. You'll see lots of people doing some pretty nutty stuff. It's not saying this is what you should do. But love and sex in the context of marriage, not wrong. But do you see how Jacob's love has become misshaped? deformed, all-consuming for him. And so I want to ask you this question, are you a Jacob? If you place all your hope on sex to fulfill you and make your whole and make it your God, if you do that again and again, friends, you will be let down. Disillusionment, disappointment will always be the end of the story. Jacob woke in the morning, behold, it says, it was Leah, not what he hoped for. That, I think, is a little picture, a little metaphor of what it's like whenever we actually chase after sin. In the morning, no matter how great you imagined the one-night stand would be or the, the dabble with pornography or whatever it is, whatever satisfaction you think you're going to find there, in one sense, there's a little image there, in the morning, it'll always be, behold, not what you expected, a letdown. Now, how do you know if you have a misshaped love of sex? Give you a few thoughts on this. First of all, are you willing to disobey God for the wrong use of sex? Now, the Bible's really clear about what God wants from us and how we are to use the good gift of sex. 1 Thessalonians 4 is just one verse that talks about this, but it's God's will that you should be sanctified, that is holy, that you should avoid sexual immorality, which is the misuse of sex, and that each of you should learn to control your own bodies in a way that is holy and honourable. Sexual immorality, the misuse of sex, right? This is what we do with our eyes, this is what we do in our thoughts, this is what we do with our bodies as well. Now, you may not sleep with that person at that party or whatever it is, but is hooking up with them being in control of your body? I doubt it. God says, run away, avoid sexual immorality. You're getting too close with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. You're not having sex, but it is sexual. God says, run away, avoid sexual immorality. You're giving in to lust and pornography. You're not giving in to lust and pornography. Good, praise God, but your heart, your head is full of lust. God says, run away. Turn the other way, run away. All of those things, whatever it might look like or could look like for you, betrays a heart that in that moment chooses to value that sin more than it does the God that we love and follow. 
And so, friends, I want to encourage you, flee from sexual morality. Run away from it. Cultivate a heart that loves God more. Make Him utmost in your heart. Now, here's a second more subtle sign that it could be you have a misshaped love of sex. You might be really committed to being godly and running away from sexual sin and all that, but secondly, are you building your life on the, the hope, the prospect of right sex? That sounds a bit weird, but let me explain. See, maybe you're a Christian here tonight, you're thoroughly committed to God's good design for sex in marriage, and so you resolve to be in control of your body, honour God, do what's right, and so you want to get married and then, then have sex. And when that finally happens, it'll be rainbows and unicorns and the most incredible thing in the world. And so you build your life on this single prospect of heading to that place in the, one, in the hope that one day, finally, that will make everything perfect. So it could be that even though you're trying to obey God, it's possible to elevate this thing of sex and chuck it up on a pedestal. Have you made sex ultimate? Even if you've never had sex, it's possible to do that. Are you treating sex like it's your God? Does it dominate your thoughts? Do you base your life decisions around it? Is it the thing that drives the direction of your life? Now, don't get me wrong, God's good gift of sex in marriage and saving it for that is actually a wonderful thing. It's a great and wonderful thing, but it's not going to complete you as a person. It's not everything. It's not going to hold up if you treat it as God. Now, if all of that isn't you and none of that's resonating with you, that's fine. I wonder if perhaps you're more of a Leah. Let me explain. Uh, Jacob's misshaped love of sex and love, I think, leads to an enormous mess, this huge fallout in this passage. And I think perhaps the greatest victim of Jacob and Laban's behaviour is Leah. Now, I've got a great deal of sympathy for Leah in the passage that was just read, and I actually think God does too, this poor woman. Now, she's quiet for most of the part in this section that we've already read, Um, but if you have a look down at verse 31 to 35, you'll see what's going on for Leah. So, have a look there. Here's the second thing, Leah, the misshaped love of love. Now, Leah, she's grown up in the shadow of her stupid, prettier, younger sister, Rachel, and now because of her dad's shenanigans, she's actually married to a man who doesn't love her. And it's devastating, it's it's tearing her apart. Have a look at verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, He enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Notice the special mention the passage makes there of the fact that she was not loved by Jacob. And God takes notice and He has compassion on Leah and it's beautiful. He blesses her with a child. Have a look at verse 32. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son and she named him Reuben. For she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery, surely my husband will love me now. words of desperation. He's a woman who so desperately wants to be loved and she hopes that if she can have a son, well then maybe that will win the affections of this man who's just ignoring her. Surely my husband will love me now, she says. But the tragic thing is, it it doesn't work. Have a look at verse 33. 
She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord has heard that I'm not loved, he gave me this one too. And so she named him Simeon. And so she hopes desperately again and again, maybe this time, maybe this time, two sons. Let's try third. Have a look at verse 34. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I've borne him three sons. And so she named him Levi. Friends, none of it works. She remains alone. Even surrounded by this family, she's alone. There's this old song, uh, this is pretty harsh actually, but there's an old song that goes, you're nobody till somebody loves you. That's a harsh way to say it, isn't it? But isn't that the subtext of every romantic movie or TV show or song out there? It's actually the anthem of our world, isn't it? When you do find the right person, the person who truly loves you, everything will be perfect, everything will be good. Love will make everything better. If I can just be with him or if I can just be with her, that was Leah. She was hopelessly lost in this misshaped love of love. But something very different happens Have a look at verse 35. Leah has a breakthrough. She turns a corner and she actually turns to God. Look at verse 35. She conceived again and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. And so she named him Judah. And then she stopped having children. There's something wonderfully defiant in those words, isn't it? This time... Don't worry about Jacob, don't worry about what he... I'm going to praise the Lord. No mention of love, no mention of maybe I can... No, this time I'm going to praise the Lord. I'm not going to spend my life living on the hope of love from a man that's never coming. Now, just so you know, the rest of the story isn't happily ever after and it's all good. In fact, what actually develops is this horrible, bitter rivalry between Leah and, and Rachel... And she still wants Jacob, it says later on, to honour her. But I think something's changed for her. The desperation subsides. This time, I'll praise the Lord. Now, notice, as we read through this story, God never condemns love. He never condemns sex. It's not wrong that Jacob wanted to marry and, and make love to Rachel. And it's not wrong that Leah wanted her husband to love her. In fact, that's biblical and entirely right. Love and sex, when understood rightly, are both wonderful gifts from God. But when we choose to grab the good gifts from God and make them ultimate, well, it ruins us. It ruins us and we fail to love the God that we should love most of all. And all sorts of brokenness follows. Jacob is ripped off by Laban, he's caught in this terrible love triangle, Leah was miserable. She puts her hope on the love of this man. And so, friends, I want to ask, are you a Leah? (laughs) It's it's fine to be in love, it's good to be in love, Uh, it's fine to wish that you were in love, but have you taken a good thing, romantic love, and made it the thing, the ultimate thing? Do you love love... (laughs) more than you love God. Now, this could come out in a whole bunch of ways, and so track with me on this. Do you obsess over the way you look? 
Now, do you tell yourself, if I can finally get in shape and get rid of all that body hair with the nair or whatever it is, you know, someone will eventually pay attention. Spend the week at the gym, spend all your paychecks on clothing and the rest of it. Now, none of that's wrong. Enjoy your fitness, dress nice, knock yourselves out. But if all of that is consuming you, then there's a chance you're actually chasing a, a misshaped love of love. Another example, if you are in a relationship, is that relationship everything to you? Now, it may not be, and don't feel like you just need to feel guilty because you're dating someone tonight, it's not that, but do you prioritise that person and that relationship over and above God Himself? If you worked out that the relationship you're currently in was actually bad for your relationship with God, for a whole number of reasons as could be, would you be able to break up? I'm not saying all of you need to go break up with one at right, but I'm just saying, if you worked out that this relationship is actually poisonous to your relationship with God, would you, could you at that point break up? Because if the answer is, well, that's impossible, well, that'd be another sign that perhaps you love love more than you love God. Another question, would you compromise on who you start a relationship with in the first place? Now, the Bible's actually pretty clear, 1 Corinthians 7, Christians should only marry other believers. And so the logic goes, don't date someone that you wouldn't then want to marry and pursue a marriage with. But what if, what if that guy or that girl at work or wherever it is, what if they're really nice, really nice, and actually treat you really good? And what if all the other options here at church actually don't look so good? Now, for what it's worth, I think you guys are all excellent options, by the way, but I get it, in, in, a, in a crowd this big, sometimes it's hard to find a, the right person, whatever, but what if that person's somewhere else? That feeling of perhaps never finding the right person is, is scary, isn't it? That's real and it's scary. And what if you do find someone and, and they, they seem perfect, it's just that they don't love Jesus like you do. Brothers and sisters, can I encourage you, don't compromise on who you'd start a relationship with, even for love. And finally, if you are single, as I know many of us are, can you cope with being single? I don't know if you're the person who's had multiple relationships over the years, dating quite a few people again and again, is it possible for you just to kind of chill out and just choose to stay single for a little bit, for a season? Can you cope with that? Do you believe the Bible, God, when He says that actually singleness is better? Again, 1 Corinthians 7, undivided devotion to the Lord, it's actually better. Do we believe that? Or are we constantly driven always chasing the next person, always needing attention from someone, somewhere, will you never be content unless you're in a relationship? Now, friends, I reckon this was me for a bunch of years when I was single, actually. I think there was something going on in my heart there where I would not be happy unless I was chasing someone or with someone. Now, I think it's tricky to know your heart in all this as well and understand what's really going on for you, because... 
it is okay to feel lonely and wish that that would end and actually wish that you would find. That's, that's a fine thing to, to want. It's, it's okay to desire to be in love and want to meet someone and marry or whatever. This was Leah's tragic story that she was left unloved by this man but God was very kind to her. But friends, in the context of loneliness and security and hurt, don't let romantic love become the ultimate love in your life. Reserve that spot for God. Continue to trust Him, come what may, whatever the future, whatever the future holds. Join Leah in her wonderful words of trust. This time I'll praise the Lord. Now, the third misshaped love that uh, comes out in chapter 30 is one that I wanted to tread carefully with, but here it is. Rachel, the misshaped love of children. Now, I want to tread carefully here for a few reasons. First of all, the desire to have children in marriage is a good and right and biblical thing. Every time the conception of a child is announced in the Bible, almost without exception, it's seen as a good gift from God. It's biblical, right? Second, every time the inability to have children is mentioned, a barren womb, it's always seen as a, as a tragic thing, a sad reality of a broken world, which God still remains sovereign over, but it's, it's a sad and tragic thing. Childlessness, infertility is a, is a tragic thing. And friends, the other reason I want to tread carefully here is that I'm aware that there is a bunch of us here tonight who are in the midst of that exact pain. The inability to conceive, if that's what you want, or, or the pain of even losing a child before it, before it enters the world and is born. Brothers and sisters, my heart and my prayer has been with you who have been in that place and your God sees that heartache. He grieves with you in the brokenness of that. However... This topic is one that's worth looking at and so let's look at this briefly together. Rachel, I think, functions, functions as an example of how a good and right desire for children can become broken and misshapen. Have a look at her in chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister and she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Do you see the desperation? Give me children or I'll die. It's a desperation that grows into a bitter jealousy. Now, we need to be careful here. This is, this is jealousy. It's not talking about the pain that you might feel when you see another set of friends have a baby and move on their way to morning church while you're left here waiting and in, in lonely again and again. Grief for yourself even as you see that joy. It's not that, this is not that. What's happening for Rachel here is this bitter jealousy, a rivalry between her and her sister and it's all coming in the context of this hopeless desperation as she loses sight of the goodness of God. Now, <clears throat> we don't have time to work our way through all of chapter 30 but let me just give you a flyover. Verses 3 to 7, Rachel takes things into her own hands in a desperate and 
sinful sort of way, in fact. Verses 3 to 7, Rachel gives her servant to Jacob and, and essentially attempts to have kids, children, through her, just like Sarah and Abraham were with her servant. She's not trusting God in this at all, but instead she's giving her servant and I think doing something wrong as she does that. And then verses 14 to 20, there's this bizarre incident, if you've had a chance to read it, uh, where Leah swaps some food, some mandrakes with Rachel for the right to sleep with Jacob. Now, it sounds all a bit bizarre, it sounds like Jacob's some sort of a prize bull or something, but anyway, mandrakes were thought to bring fertility and so Rachel is hoping that she can make it happen that way with this fertility food, but instead of the mandrakes helping Rachel to have children, Leah gets pregnant again and so the bargain all ends up being a massive fail. In her desperation, in her desire for a good thing, she's made it, I think, the ultimate thing. Now, wonderfully, you can see at the end of this passage there, God is very kind to Rachel. He sees her pain and He actually responds. Even before she's repented of her jealousy and the behaviour toward her sister, God steps in and in His kindness, He meets her need and in doing so, I think He's wooing her back to Himself. He's drawing her back to Himself. Have a look at verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. And so she named him Joseph and said, may the Lord add to me another son, which he does in time in later chapters. But she turns to God and she gives him the thanks. Now, as a very quick aside, this passage is not saying anything about the use of, you know, human means to pursue fertility, right? It's not a critique of medical intervention or something like that. It's not a cautionary tale of let go and let God and just trust Him and He'll sort out the fertility things. But what it does do is describe the plight of a woman who is desperate for a child. For a child. That's not a wrong desire, but in her desperation... I think she makes it the thing, the ultimate thing, and it descends into this crazy, sinful mess. But in the midst of that, God is there and in His goodness, He intervenes and He helps Rachel. Now, friends, catch this as well, this is important, this matters. Likewise, this is not a promise that somehow, if you sort things out with God in the end, He'll give you a child in the end. It's not a promise of anything like that. There's no such promise in the Bible for us today. Sometimes in God's kindness, He does bring new life against all odds and all circumstances and all expectations, sometimes God does that, but sometimes He doesn't, in His wisdom. But this passage reminds us of this, He is good, He rules all things, even fertility and children and the rest. He's kind and gracious, even when our love of good things outgrows our love of God, He he remains kind and gracious. And so, brothers and sisters, uh, in the midst of infertility and longing, can I say, continue to guard your hearts. Let Christ remain your ultimate treasure, even as you rightly long for children. God, who is your treasure, is there. He loves you, He cares for you, whatever the years ahead hold. That is who your God is, and so cling to that. But did you notice this as well? 
There's this strange and beautiful contrast between Leah and Rachel in this story because God can use all sorts of means to draw people back to Himself. And sometimes God woos us to Himself through undeserved kindness. I think this is what He does with Rachel. God in His kindness gives Rachel the desire of her heart even when her love for Him has become misshapen. But His goodness isn't lost on her. And in her joy of receiving this child, she actually turns to God and gives Him the glory and praises Him. Sometimes God does that. Now, sometimes God woos us back to Himself, actually, without giving us the desire of our heart, because in His wisdom, for whatever reason, He knows that's best. Leah never won the affection of Jacob. That never gets sorted out. But, in the midst of the disappointment, she's still able to say, this time I'll praise the Lord. And so when our prayers and our cries go unanswered, brothers and sisters, would it still be the case that we're able to turn to God and find our treasure in Him? Whatever season, whether our desires are mercifully met or even when our prayers go painfully unanswered, Remember who our God is, our good God. Praise Him for His good gifts and worship Him as the giver of all good things, not His gifts themselves. Now, what are we to do with this picture of all these misshaped loves as they fall out in front of us here in this passage? Love, sex, children, whatever else your heart could make up as a thing it wants to make ultimate. It could be anything. What are we to do? Well, friends, here's the most frustrating thing of all in all of this. Even when we do get the desires of our heart, even when we do get the thing that we're chasing, we find love and marriage and sex and children, whatever else it is, those things still never stack up. They're good gifts from God, but they're not God. And in a metaphorical sense, in the morning, it's always, behold, it was Leah. It's it's a letdown. That's the observation of a great Christian writer, a guy called C.S. Lewis. Now, there's a long quote, I'm going to put it up on the screen here because it's really worth getting. Catch this. Most people, if they'd really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely. They really desire something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to, to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of a foreign country or first take up some subject which excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. Now, I'm not speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we have grasped at in that moment of longing which just fades away in reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be good, the hotels and scenery may be excellent, and the chemistry, he's really into chemistry it seems, may be a very interesting job. But something has evaded us. Is that not true of every single thing you could possibly cast all your hopes on in this world? They don't hold up. Doesn't do it in the end. And so what do you do with that? 
What do you do when you just can't, it's elusive, you can't grab hold of it. When the world lets you down, what's your next step? What are you going to do? There's some well-trodden paths you could take. You could give it another go. Try again and again. Look for the perfect lover, the perfect boyfriend, the perfect girlfriend. Go on endlessly, finding that none of them are going to complete you. Try and try again. Give it a go. You could instead turn on yourself and blame yourself and beat yourself up. I'm worthless. I'm the problem. There's something wrong with me. Why can't I be happy? You could even turn around and blame the world and get bitter if you want. Turn on the whole male race. All men are pigs. Turn on the female race, whatever. You know, all women are evil. You can become cynical. You, You can stay on the treadmill of any of those ideas if you want for the rest of your life and run on that treadmill all the way into the grave. Many people do. Or you could find the object of your desire, the one who sits behind all of those wants. I catch this, this is important. At the end of that chapter, C.S. Lewis, he comes to this conclusion, here's where he lands it. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable conclusion is that I was made for another world, something that is supernatural, eternal, God. You were made for God. He's the only one who can hold up under the hope of expectation. He's the only one who you can genuinely cast all your hopes and desires on Him and have it not all just slip through your fingers. All your love for Him will not prove a disappointment. All of His love for you will never be a letdown. In Him, in God, we have riches beyond all measure. Fulfillment. A love that doesn't disappoint. Now, catch this. This eternal fulfillment, this eternal desire for something that will last forever, we we find it in God Himself now, but we can only know the experience of that by degrees now. We know something of that today if you come to Christ, if you already know Him, you'll know something of what I'm saying now as you live your life in this body But the full experience of that, the full fulfillment of that, is something that we will know in bucket loads, endlessly in the age to come, in eternity, when we're with Him for all eternity. And so here's the last thing for us to see tonight. Amidst all the mess of all of this, God is always keeping His eternal promises. Now, as we look at this passage tonight, on the surface, it just seems like a big, messy love triangle, three people behaving terribly, chaos, but in that chaos, I want you to notice God is doing something. Now, He's doing something individually in the lives of these three people as He works to draw them to Himself, He's doing that, but more than that, God is doing something cosmic, something cataclysmic, something something world-altering is going on in these passages here. He's making a nation from this messy family. Literally, this is the birth of a nation. Remember the promise back in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham, I will make you into a nation and I'll bless you. Not only that, Abraham, all people on earth will be blessed through you. Now, I don't know if you saw this as we whipped our way through the passage tonight, you can see it up on the screen here, but this is literally the birth of a nation. 
Those 12 names, those 12 sons who are born in these chapters, this is the beginning of a nation. Uh, Further ahead, chapter 32, we won't go there, but Jacob wrestles with God there and instead of seeking blessing in sex and love and whatever else, he actually seeks blessing from God himself. God bless me, he wrestles with him in chapter 32 and when that happens, God renames Jacob Israel. He becomes the the father of this nation. Do you see the sovereign hand of God at work here to bring about this nation? Humanly speaking, on the surface, it just looks like an ancient, trashy version of Married at First Sight. It was always trashy, but like that's on the surface, it looks like just this crazy mess. But through it all, God is working for his eternal promises. Through a bunch of sinful, messy people, God brings about His chosen people, this precious nation, Israel. And not only that, not just this nation, which is going to be the thing that dominates the rest of the Old Testament, but actually through this nation comes the source of blessing for the whole world, Jesus. From these 12 sons, I don't know if you remember, but which of these 12 sons would you expect to be the one where Jesus finds His family line from? If you read the rest of Genesis, Joseph's kind of the good guy, he's the hero, right? You'd expect it to be him, but you know which line Jesus comes from? Which son? Judah. And spoiler alert, chapter 38, Judah's not one of the good guys. In the messiest of families, in the misshaped loves and bad decisions, and God was there, bringing about His plan to bless the world, to bring Jesus And friends, when Jesus comes, He's the one who comes claiming this about Himself. He says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the food that you need. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty again. You will never thirst. You will never desire outside of Christ. He comes saying, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Rest for your souls. That's the one that God is bringing, the one in whom we find all of our meaning, all of our joy, all of our satisfaction, our hope, our love, our treasure in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray that that would be the case and we're going to sing. Father God, your kindness is immense. Your goodness knows no bounds. We praise you and we thank you for every good gift that you give us. But Father, over and above every possible earthly gift of yours that we may or may not enjoy in this life, we praise you for the gift of your Son, that in Him... (laughs) we get you, we have access to to God Himself, He is God among us and He brings us to God Himself. And so, Father, we pray that You would be our treasure, our joy, our delight, our satisfaction. Lord, help us to turn away from worthless substitutes of You and find our joy and our all in Jesus. Amen.